My name is Adam, if we've never met before. I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church, and we're wrapping up a series called We the Church. In the midst of transition, we want to remember what our church is all about. We the Church want to help you live up, revolving our lives around God. We the Church want you to lean in and live life in community, and we the Church want you to then go out now, last week we talked about serving out in the local church. And today we're gonna to look at the second part of going out. And to do this, I wanna look at two questions. Between these two questions, we have a choice. Now recently I had the opportunity to do something I haven't done in months. I got to eat dinner outside at a restaurant with another human. What a concept. When it was time to choose a restaurant, what was the first thing I did? I did the same thing most of you do. I went to Yelp. Before I go anywhere, I always go to Yelp first. It's, it's a part of my life now. Now here in the dark ages before Yelp, there was something called the Yellow Pages. And apparently they cut down hundreds of trees just to make one of them. And they weighed 20 pounds. And to find a restaurant, you have to lick your fingers and sift through the numerous pages and just like guess which place to go to. Uh, man, what a world to live in back then. Now, Yelp, though, is such a weird thing if you think about it. Any person, regardless of culinary training or credentials, can instantly rate a place and influence it based on their own preferences. I love reading Yelp reviews, especially the bad ones. Uh, so I want to show you some of my favorites, okay? So he here's the first one. This guy says this. He says, don't try the pizza. It's so good, you will come back every day. It completely ruined my social life because each night I only want to go there. I hate this place. One star. The pizza is too good. They're doing their jobs too well. One star. Uh, this next one is in our neck of the woods, San Francisco. I love this. Uh, she says, I thought about whether to give it one or two stars, but considering I would not want to come back here even if I was on a carriage drawn by 100 horses with a swarm of bees chasing me, one star. Like this is almost biblical language, a carriage with a, sw a swarm of bees. That's, that's quite the statement. Uh, this next one, this guy gives one star and then says this, not nearly worth the price. Food, of course, is exceptional. Wait, that's like a good thing for a restaurant. Uh, staff was giddy, uh, very inappropriate for a haute cuisine joint, dressing in ill-fitting, mediocre suits, vaguely rude, I don't even know what that means, self-absorbed, chubby, as someone afflicted with chubbiness, I resent this comment deeply. And then finally, my favorite. I'll see if you can guess where this review comes from. I expected this park to be one of the highlights in our 10-day road trip. We were horribly, terribly, tragically disappointed. The rangers therein were unfriendly and frankly rude. Tourists were drinking tea from their parked car. The smell of sulfur nearly knocked my girlfriend off her feet and the stench followed us through the day. Any guess what that is? Yellowstone National Park. I'm sorry, this legendary national treasure didn't live up to your expectations. See, we've created entire rating systems based on how I am being served. Did it live up to what I expected or wanted? Did I leave satisfied and fulfilled? So this first question we wanna discuss is a question that's been engineered in us from our society 
and culture. The question is, what about me? What about my wants, desires, hopes, and comforts? We live in a culture obsessed with self, treating ourselves, entertaining ourselves, comforting ourselves, numbing ourselves, improving ourselves. What about me? Now, surely a culture this obsessed with self would be a culture that is fully satisfied, right? Fulfilled and secure, flourishing beyond belief, at peace and calm because we have all we need. Of course, this is not true at all. You know this. I know this. It doesn't take much research to see how high our levels of dissatisfaction and anxiety are in our country. Our houses have never been bigger. Our cars can drive themselves. Every piece of entertainment and information is instantly available at our fingertips. Yet, we're more dissatisfied than ever. And I know this about you. You want to flourish. You want to live life to the full, a life that is vibrant and deeply meaningful. And the good news is that God wants this too. And so do we as a church. But it's almost as if God hasn't created us to flourish through self-service and self-absorption. See, there's a paradox. Self-service doesn't bring fulfillment or flourishing. It actually creates a heart that gets spoiled, that festers and rots. Our self-obsession turns into a prison of self a dungeon we can't escape from, bound in chains by our self-centeredness. My son recently asked me a great question at the dinner table while eating vegetables. He said, Daddy, can I have blueberry muffins for every meal from now on? I said, no, man can't live on blueberry muffins alone. And he made a frown and he said, but I don't like vegetables. And then I said a phrase I swore I'd never say as a parent. I said, well, trust me. As your father, I know what's best for you. You'll thank me later. I'm glad there are no like parent Yelp reviews. He would have given me one star. That guy never gives me blueberry muffins. Sometimes we have to trust our father knows what's best for us. What's best is not to serve ourselves with pleasures and comforts. It's to look beyond ourselves. The great preacher and writer, George MacDonald, put it like this. The love of our neighbor is the only door out of the dungeon of self. There's a door out of our spoiled and rotten dungeon of self-obsession. And the door is love of neighbor. And one time a Pharisee asked Jesus a question, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus proceeded to tell him what became one of his most famous parables, the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10.30, we see this. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So in this famous parable, Jesus paints a picture of despair. Someone's been brutally beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And a priest comes along, and then someone who would have served with priests at the temple, surely one of these men will stop. They're like many of you listening today. They're they were religious, devoted to God. But of course, we know they did not. 
they passed to the other side. A year before he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon on this very passage. In his sermon, he says that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? What will happen to me if I cross this road and stop? And Dr. King points out this very question we've already mentioned, what about me? Maybe they said, what about my safety? The Jericho Road was a notoriously dangerous path. Maybe they said, what about my next appointment? In their minds, they probably had incredibly important things to do. Maybe they said, what will others think? Especially for the priest, if the man was dead, it was unclean to touch a dead man for seven days. What would this mean for his status or morality? You know, it's so easy for us to judge the characters in the story, but don't we struggle with the same questions? What about my safety and well-being? What about all the other important things in my life? What about my status? And now the assumed villain enters the story. When Jesus mentions the Samaritan, this was the person who was the wrong tribe, the wrong race, the wrong theology. And Jesus continues, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him. When he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So the villain turns out to be the hero. And not only feels pity for the stranger, but is moved to great action and care. And in his sermon, Dr. King then says this, the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. Not what will happen to me if I stop to help this man, but what will happen to this man if I do not stop to help him? Dr. King says, this is why that man was good and great. He was great because he was willing to take a risk for humanity. He was willing to ask, what will happen to this man, not what will happen to me? So he brilliantly introduces the second question. The first question is, what about me? The second question is the reversed. What about others? What will happen to another person if I don't take action? If I don't put myself at risk? If I don't speak up? If I don't get uncomfortable? Dr. King then says at the end of our life, the question won't be about our awards or achievements or treasures or status. The question on that day will be, what did you do for others? And one of the reasons the sermon moves me so much is something Dr. King says next. He says, I don't know how long I'll live and I'm not concerned about that, but I hope I can live so well that the preacher can get up and say, he was faithful. That's all, that's enough. That's the sermon I'd like to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, you've been concerned about others. That's where I wanna go from this point on to the rest of my days. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. I want to be a servant. I wanna be a witness for my Lord to do something for others. He didn't know how much longer he would live. In fact, it was almost exactly one more year of life. He gave his life in service of others. He was imprisoned 29 times, rallied a generation, spoke against injustice, fought peacefully for love and equality, and was murdered for his service. 
When we ask the question, what about others? It's not an easy question. Serving is not something that we can simply uh, take place on one weekend or a few times a year. It's a question that requires lifelong sacrifice. One of my church coworkers who will remain nameless is an extreme J on the Myers-Briggs personality test. If you don't know what that is, it essentially means that he is wired for details and schedules and planning. Whereas I'm a P on the test, meaning I go with the flow, AKA I lose all my receipts. Or another way of saying it, uh, he's not cool and laid back like all of us peas. Totally kidding. If it wasn't for details, people, I'd never get my taxes done or remember to buy my kids Christmas gifts. So I love you guys. Uh, He, of course, loves lists, especially to-do lists. He loves checking things off the list once he completes them. He loves this so much that he does something that's like certifiably crazy. If he completes a task that was not on the list, he will then immediately write out what he just did only to cross it off the list. In his words, it's so satisfying to cross something off the task list. How many of you guys do this? I'm curious, like on our chat, let me know if you engage in such crazy behavior. Here's the thing, if we're not careful, Serving others can be something we do simply to cross it off the list, to check a box. I served at the homeless shelter on Thanksgiving. Check. I gave a grocery bag of supplies. Check. I did this project. Now I can go about my life. It feels satisfying to cross it off our list. Now, don't hear me wrong. These are great and amazing things. We as a church want to continually provide opportunities and projects to help you serve others in tangible ways. So please, please continue to do this. Our mission directors work hard to make these events happen. But the goal is not to do these projects and be done. When we talk about our church value of going out and serving others, we're not talking about occasional projects. We're talking about a lifelong commitment to a way of living. Last week, I got the chance to interview some of our church's mission partners. They're great examples of what it means to commit to a life of service. Check this out. Well, hey, you guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, You know, you've got a captive audience of like thousands, maybe millions watching across the world. Just kidding. Uh, But uh, we're so grateful to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to just start by asking uh, your names and you can tell us what your current role is. Yeah, I'm Matt Meyer. And I'm Becca Meyer. And we work on staff through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, but serve overseas um, in Bosnia and Herzegovina as cross-cultural workers, as missionaries. So part of what we're doing in this sermon is just talking about what it means to give our lives to service uh, and helping others. And I'd love to just hear a little more about your story. Uh, like, did you guys ever think, like, growing up, how you grew up, did you think your life would ever be centered on service or missions at all? Yeah, um, I think for me, the answer is both yes and no. So I grew up um, at what is now the Menlo Saratoga campus from the time I was born. And so I think if you told me as a kid or even in the youth group there, um, hey, this is what your life is going to look like. You're going to be serving overseas um, in Bosnia, doing all these things. 
I would have said, I, that doesn't really sound like me. Um, I've constantly <laughs> been surprised by the ways God has asked me to serve. But I think growing up, I also heard following Jesus means you serve people. Following Jesus means you take up your cross. Following Jesus means uh, you consider others better than yourself. So I, I think I knew part of following Jesus meant to have a category to serve, but God has surprised me with what it's looked like. Wow. Yeah. So at some point you guys, uh, you decided to jump in like from your, your normal life here in California and, you know, go to Bosnia. Like what, what would you say is the turning point? What sort of drew you to do this? For me, I think, um, using the jumping in image for me, it wasn't necessarily jumping in. It was, um, like slowly acclimating to the water of the pool. So (laughs) I remember these steps that I took into greater service and, um, my first or one of my first experiences cross-culturally overseas and what it felt like to serve other people or to see what great need existed around the world and how alive I felt in those moments. And, there are several of those markers, whether it be that that trip to Egypt or getting to sit one-on-one with a friend or someone I was mentoring in a coffee shop and see God change someone's life, um, sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly, that I think God kind of like pulled me in deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where we find ourselves now uh, overseas doing what we're doing. Have you guys ever like felt like giving up or you know, in the, in these moments, even, you know, we, we were talking earlier, you guys were serving with InterVarsity here in the States. Like, has there been moments where you felt like giving up and and what keeps you going? Uh, Sort of just living a a different kind of life than a lot of uh, our world. I can go first on that one. I have very clear memory (laughs) of when our daughter, our second daughter was born, she was young and I was in full-time ministry trying to figure out what does this look like as a mom with two kids who's trying to care for them, but also work full time. And I felt like it was very clear that the way that I was going to be doing ministry and living life was going to have to look a little different with two kids than it did with no kids or even one kid. And so it was really hard. I just remember feeling like I can't, I can't keep doing this. Something has to change. And for me, that was kind of how I was doing ministry and not doing as much out of my own strength or time or energy. Um, but uh, it was really hard that I think for us, for me, the hardest season uh, with wow. really, really young kids and yeah, and, and, and a difficult ministry season where I wasn't seeing fruit, wasn't seeing the results that I wanted to see. So, but God was faithful and it was, didn't necessarily get easier right away, but um, thankfully did get better. I want to thank you on behalf of our entire church that's, that's watching online, including a shout out to the Saratoga uh, campus where you're from, Matt. And uh, man, we thank you for being our partners. You know, you're sort of our hands and feet um, to a different uh, culture, serving uh, for us, with us. And so thank you so much. We're, we're praying for you. And uh, just pray that God will continue to bless your ministry, that he'll help you persevere. Uh, But thank you for taking this time. Uh, We really appreciate it. Some of you may be called to pack up your life and your kids and move overseas like Matt and Becca. We need people like you. We need people to take this call to help the Bay and beyond to flourish. But 
for many of us, a life of service will mean staying in the same job, going to the same school, living in the same community. But instead of living the same life out of self-service, you'll be called to live this life for the sake of others. This is what our church means by going out. We open our eyes to the needs of others and we respond by leaving our own agenda and desires to help them. You may not be a technical missionary, but you're called to live a missional life, to stop looking inward and look out to the expansive and massive opportunities available outside your dungeon of self. Your work and the tone of your emails, the conflicts, the meetings, the managing, this is your mission. Your neighborhood with the quirky neighbors and the old folks and the young folks, this is your mission. Your local coffee shop, your local Safeway, your classmates and teachers and students, your social media friends, your family, this is your mission. Which question will you choose? What about me or what about others? Will you focus your eyes inward or will you look out at the expansive opportunities all around? Years ago, I got the opportunity to visit Nelson Mandela's prison cell on Robben Island. Mandela spent the majority of his early life fighting for the equality of blacks in South Africa. And for this fight, he was imprisoned for 27 years. A tiny cell, eight foot by seven foot, with only a straw mat on the ground to sleep on. I remember being there and turning and stretching out my arms to understand how cramped and small it really was. And for years, he had served his people and now he served 27 years in a dungeon. In 1990, he was finally going to be released. He would exit the door of the prison and head out to freedom. Can you imagine this feeling? Years of looking at this cramped eight by seven foot cell, and now being able to see the vastness of the world outside. I wouldn't have blamed him at all if he wanted to exit that door and spend the rest of his life serving himself. He deserved it. It's time to get my Hawaii on, time to get my hot tub on. But this was the first thing Mandela said to the public when he walked out of the door. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant. A humble servant of others. He would go on to help the residing president end apartheid, and then he became the first black president of South Africa. Mandela had spent years in one dungeon, and he understood that serving himself would have been another kind of imprisonment. So instead of asking the question, what about me? He asked the question, what about others? And he gave his life to them. When Jesus came onto the scene, he turned everything upside down. The Jewish people had assumed and hoped that the Messiah would be a conquering king. When the Messiah came, he would restore the nation to power and greatness. And Jesus came as a king, just not the king they expected. A king, of course, is served by others. In the ancient world, a king was surrounded by servants, ready to do his bidding at a moment's notice. 
For a king, the question was, how can you serve me? What can you offer me? But Jesus reversed the question. In the great poem in Philippians 2, there's this line, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This king offered a new way. Instead of asking, how can I be served? He said, I am here to serve others. This is not what the people wanted. It's not what they asked for. I'm sure many would have said, he didn't restore our nation with power. He came and taught peace and gentleness. Sad, weak, one star, maybe two stars. It was really cool when he he walked on water. Just like Dr. King, this king was murdered for his service. He showed us that a life of service requires a full commitment beyond a checkbox, beyond a one-time trip, a life of sacrifice. He taught us that if we want a flourishing life, it comes not from serving ourselves, but from serving others. There's a door out of the dungeon of self. May we step out of this door, out of our ego and pleasures and comforts. May we step out of our worship gatherings constructed on our own preferences and traditions. May we speak out against injustices against our neighbors. May we branch out of our comfortable tribes, our in-groups, our political identities. And may we live out the kingdom created by a king who became a servant. May we ask the question, what about others?